Ave Maria, Purissima, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As usual, I will edit and cut and paste the quotes. Now, before we get started today, we need to spend a few minutes talking about the problem, even the dangers that our imagination can cause us when we're trying to understand certain aspects of our holy faith. So first off, what is our imagination? It's the picture-making faculty of our mind. It's what we use to picture things. And this is not the same as our intellect, which is a faculty of our mind by which we know and understand things. The intellect is the faculty of our mind where we find ideas. They're not the same. That's easy to see if we just consider something we all learned about in geometry, which is geometric points. Now remember that geometric point has absolutely no parts. There's no spread to it at all. It has no size, no length, no depth, no width. Okay, so what? Well, we can all understand that concept, but we can't help making an inch of it, a little dot, right? I remember when I was first learning about this, I'd take my knife and sharpen pencil, sharpen, sharpen, make a little dot, and I'd look at it. No matter how fine I made that point, I'd study and say, wow, that has still got a little spread to it. Till I finally realized I can understand a geometric point, but every picture I make of it is going to be wrong, because every picture, whether it's a dot there or the little black dot in my imagination, has some spread. It has some width or something like that, okay? That little dot in our imagination has the size. It has a width, a length, a depth. So that image is positively and absolutely not a geometric point. We understand the concept of a geometric point. We think about geometric points using our intellect. But our imagination will automatically make a picture of a geometric point, but that image is certainly not the same as the concept. Okay, so the intellect is the faculty of the mind by which we think, by which we understand, the faculty of, the, of our mind where we find ideas. <coughs> And imagination is the picture-making faculty of our mind. It's the place where we find images. So what's the problem? Frank Sheet explains, The first difficulty in the way of the intellect's functioning well is that it hates to function at all, at any rate, beyond the point where the functioning requires effort. The result is that when any matter arises which is properly the job of the intellect, then either nothing gets done at all, or else the imagination leaps in and does it instead. There is nothing to be done with the intellect till the imagination has been put firmly in its place. And this is extraordinarily difficult. One of the results of the fall of man is that imagination has gotten completely out of hand. Consider what imagination is. It's the power we have of making mental pictures of the material universe. What our senses have experienced, the sights the eyes have seen, the sounds the ears heard, what we've smelled, touched, and tasted. All these can be reproduced by the imagination, either as they originally came through our senses or in any variety of new combinations. A Roman's reflection upon what life would be like if we lacked this power will show how valuable a role the imagination has to play. But it is a subordinate part and entirely limited to the world of matter. What the senses cannot experience, the imagination 
cannot make pictures of. That's really important. What the senses cannot experience, the imagination cannot make pictures of. I should say it cannot make accurate pictures because it will make a picture just like the geometric point, but it's not accurate. But in the state in which we are now, this picture-making power seems able to outshot almost every other power we have. We're all familiar with distraction. But besides distraction, imagination has two other ways of interfering. The first of these is that the imagination acts like a censor upon what the intellect shall accept. Tell a man, for instance, that his soul has no shape or color or size or weight. And the chances are that he will retort that such a thing is unimaginable and think no further. But to say that something is unimaginable is merely to say that the imagination cannot make a picture of it. But pictures are only of the material world, and to that, imagination is limited. Naturally, it cannot form pictures of spiritual realities, angels or human souls or love or justice. Imagination cannot form correct mental pictures of these because none of our senses could experience them. To complain that a spiritual thing is unimaginable would be like complaining that air is invisible. The air is beyond the reach of one particular sense, namely sight, because it lacks color. Spirit is beyond the reach of all the senses, and so of imagination, because spirit lacks all material qualities. With the eyes of your body, you cannot see justice. You can see a just man or an unjust man, but justice at yourself, itself you cannot see with your eyes. Nor can you hear it, or smell it, or run it across your taste buds, or bark your shins on it. Thus the reality of any spiritual statement must be tested by the intellect, not by the imagination. The intellect's word of rejection is inconceivable. This means the statement offered to the intellect contains a contradiction within itself so that no concept can be formed that embodies that statement. A four-sided triangle, for instance, is in this sense inconceivable. It's a contradiction in terms because a triangle is a three-sided figure and a four-sided, three-sided figure cannot be conceived and cannot be. Now the less instructed atheist will ask whether God can make a weight so heavy that he cannot lift it, in the happy belief that whatever answer we give, we shall admit that there's something that God cannot do. But the question is literally meaningless. A weight that an omnipotent being cannot lift is as complete a contradiction in terms as a four-sided triangle. In either case, the words are English, but they do not mean anything because they cancel each other out. There's no point in piling up together a lot of words, regardless of their meaning, and then asking triumphantly, can God make that? God can do anything, but a contradiction in terms is not a thing at all. It is no thing. God himself could not make a four-sided triangle or a weight that the Almighty Power could not lift. They are inconceivable. They are nothing. And to give a slightly different emphasis to Scripture, nothing is impossible to God. Thus, the first test of any statement concerning a spirituality is not, can imagination form a mental picture of it, but does it stand up to the examination of the intellect? 
Do the terms of it contradict each other? Is it conceivable or inconceivable? Imagination can say nothing about it either way. It cannot reject it. It cannot accept it either. It must leave it alone. And that's precisely one of the things that the imagination hates to do. Which leads us to the other of the two ways in which imagination hinders intellect without our perceiving it. When considering some spiritual reality, imagination comes along with all sorts of mental pictures, comparisons from the material world. Thus, for the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity, imagination offers the picture of a shamrock or a triangle or three drops of water poured together to form one drop, close quote. And of course, none of those are the Blessed Trinity. In other words, we thank Frank Sheet for that, but in other words, our imaginations cannot help making pictures of material things. That's what they do. That's why they're there. But we don't want to confuse ourselves by assuming that a particular picture we have in our imagination is in any way an accurate representation of a spiritual reality. Angels are pure spirits, for example. That means that although they may, may occasionally appear looking like men or what have you, in themselves they don't look like anything. They're not objects of our sight. We can't see them. They're pure spirits. They're not actually guys with bird wings. That's just an artistic way of portraying them. So in the picture, you can tell which one's the angel. But angels don't look like guys with wings. They're pure spirits. Okay, geometric point. Our imagination can't help making pictures of a material thing, like a point. But we don't want to confuse ourselves by assuming that picture of a geometric point that we have in our imagination is in any way an accurate representation of the actual reality. It's a, not a very significant spiritual reality, but a geometric point is a spiritual reality. Not very profound, but once we see that, wow, there's a difference between my concept of it and the picture I make, we can see, oh, that's got to be the same with angels. So even if we think of angels, we may very well think of St. Michael, with, as we see him, the statues of the wings and all that, but at the same time, we have to remember, that's an image. That is just an image, but that's not what St. Michael looks like, because he doesn't look like anything. He's not a sensible object. He's a spiritual being. Okay. We can't help making pictures of spiritual things. We want to be careful not to be misled by those material images of spiritual things. We want to be careful to remember that these images are not accurate because spiritual things cannot be accurately portrayed in an image. Okay, so we're going to be talking about spiritual things today. So with that warning firmly in place, let's get started. This sermon is basically a series of brilliant comments of the late, great Frank Sheet, cut from several of his works. Today, we're going to be talking about human nature, about what we are. Okay, so what are we? What is our nature? Frank Sheet. First, man has a material body. Perhaps a definition of matter is impossible, but at least we can say what we mean by it. Matter impresses us first as that kind of being that occupies space. Our bodies occupy space like wood or stone or water. We come closer to the notion of what matter is if we consider material beings as beings which have no permanent hold upon their own nature. Any material being is at a given time itself. 
but it can always become something else. Thus, wood can, can become ash, hay can become cob. Impermanence, changeability, is of the very essence of all material beings whatsoever. And this property, too, man's body has. It, too, can disintegrate. It, too, can pass through a variety of forms of material being. For example, our bodies can be burnt and turned to ash. Our bodies can be eaten and become tiger. But man's body is not only matter, it is living matter. Man's body is not only matter, it is living matter. Here again, we need not search for any very precise definition. It's sufficient we should know what human activities we have in mind when we speak of man's body as a living body. There is something in man's body, as in the body of an animal or in a plant, which distinguishes it from non-living matter. The powers of growth from some internal principle. The powers of reproduction are sufficient to distinguish matter which has this life principle from matter which has not. The reality of the life principle is shown not only by its presence while it's present, but by its absence when it departs. For the material being which has lost its life principle is not in exactly the state of those other kinds of matter which has never been alive. It corrupts. Because bodies that lose their life principle, bodies which die, rot. They decay. That's not something we see in living matter, like rocks or minerals, the floor tiles, for example. So much for the immediately obvious facts about man's body, that it's matter and has something which makes it be alive. But man is aware of his power to produce effects which have nothing whatsoever in common with matter. Man can think. A thought is not reducible to anything we feel justified in calling material. If we list every known property of matter, we shall find that a thought has none of them. A thought does not occupy space. It has no shape, or size, or weight. It's not perceptible by any of the five senses. It cannot be made into something else. A thought is not reducible to anything we feel justified in calling matter. If we list every known property of matter, we shall find that a thought has none of them. It doesn't occupy space. It has no shape or size or weight. It's not perceptible at any of our senses. It cannot be made into something else. Faced with his power to produce something which has not one single element in common with the matter of his body, man has normally adopted the obvious solution, that this utterly unmaterial thing must be produced by some other element in his body distinct from his body, but some other element himself that's distinct from his body. In other words, man produces two sets of operations which have nothing in common which means he must consist of two distinct principles. There's the material body, which produces material operations, and there's the spiritual part of him, which produces the non-material operations. Yet these are not two beings, but one being. Catholic philosophy summarizes all this in the statement that man has a material constituent, the body, that he has a life principle which makes his body to be a living body, his soul, and that this life principle, his soul, is spiritual and therefore capable of producing those spiritual effects 
which we have just considered. The materialist, now that's the category to which most scientists fall, is necessary put into a dilemma by all this. For if matter is the only reality, then matter is producing thought, which not only has no element in common with matter, but is undeniably of a higher nature than matter. The materialist, by making matter produce effects totally different from and higher than itself, adopts a fantastic solution. Chemists teach that every element in the human body is found on Earth's crust. If anyone were to claim that by a rearrangement of these chemical elements, the Earth's crust could be made to think, and this is, in essence, the materialist argument, if anyone were so stupid to claim that by a rearrangement of these chemical elements, the Earth's crust would be made to think, everyone would think that the burden would be very definitely upon him to prove such a ridiculous and, frankly, stupid claim. There's a world of matter, and there's a world of spirit. Man who belongs to both worlds and is, is in his own person the link which makes them into one universe, where the intersection between the material universe and the spiritual universe. And although man is a union of body and spiritual soul, it would be absurd not to realize that the soul is the higher principle of the two. By his body, man is tied down to this world of time and space and its instability. By his spiritual soul, man is placed beyond this lower sphere. Thank Frank Shi. Now, we'll spend a few minutes unfolding some of the more important consequences of what we've just heard about spirit. Frank Shi. Spirit knows, loves, is powerful. A questioner asked me what I meant by spirit. I answered, a spirit has no shape, no size, has no color, has no weight, does not occupy space. He said, that's the best definition of nothing I've ever heard, which was very reasonable of him. I'd give him a list of things spirit is not, without a hint as to what it is. In theology, spirit is not only a key word, it is the key word. Our Lord said to the Samaritan woman, God is a spirit. Unless we know the meaning of the word spirit, we do not know what he said. It's as though he had said, God is a... Which tells us nothing at all. The same is true of every other doctrine in theology. They all include spirit. In theology, we're studying spirit all the time. And the mind with which we are studying it is a spirit too. We simply must know what it is. And I don't mean just a definition. In order to understand our holy religion, we must master the idea, make it our own, learn to handle it comfortably and skillfully. We begin with our own spirit, the one we know best. Spirit is the element in us by which we know and love, by which we therefore decide. Our body knows nothing. It loves nothing. Bodily pleasures are not enjoyed by the body. It reacts to them physically with heightened pulse, for example, or acid stomach. But it's the knowing mind that enjoys the reactions or dislikes them. The body decides nothing, though our will may decide in favor of things that give us bodily pleasure. Spirit knows and loves. A slightly longer look at ourselves reveals that spirit has power too. The mind uses the body, not asking the body's consent. The mind is the principle, the body the instrument. 
We have evidence in our own experience of mind affecting matter directly. We will to raise our arm, for example, and we raise it. The raising of the arm is a very complicated anatomical activity, but it's set in motion by a decision of the will. Spirit produces what matter cannot. We've seen that in a spirit does a number of things. It knows, it loves, it animates the body. But what, at the end of all that, is spirit? We can get at it by looking at our own soul, examining in particular one of the things it does. It produces ideas. I remember a dialogue with a materialist who asserted that his idea of justice was the result of a purely bodily activity produced by the man's material brain. And because of Frank Sheed, I've used this many times when I used to work in the lab. It had almost the same results every time. Catholic. How many inches long is your idea of justice? Materialists, don't be silly. Ideas have no length. Catholic, okay. How much does your idea of justice weigh? Materialist, what are you doing? Trying to make a fool of me? Catholic, no, I'm taking you at your word. What color is your idea of justice? What shape is your idea of justice? The discussion at this point broke down. The materialist saying that the Catholic was talking nonsense. It is nonsense, of course, to speak of a thought having length or weight or color or shape. But the materialist had said that thought was material. And the Catholic was simply asking what material attributes it had. In fact, it has none. And the materialist knew this perfectly well. Well, he had not drawn the obvious conclusion. If we're continually producing things which have no attribute of matter, and we are, then there must be some element in us which is not matter to produce them. If we're continually producing things which have no attribute of matter, and we are, then there must be something in us which is not matter to produce them. This element we call spirit. Oddly enough, the materialist, and as we've said, most scientists fall into this category. Oddly enough, the materialist thinks of us as superstitious people who believe in a fantasy called spirit, of himself as a plain, blunt man who asserts that ideas are produced by a bodily organ, the brain. What he's asserting is that matter produces offspring which have not one single attribute in common with it. And what could be more fantastic than that? We are the plain, blunt men who should insist on it. Occasionally, materialists will argue that there are changes in the brain when we think, grooves or electrical discharges or whatnot. But these only accompany the thought. They are not the thought. When we think of justice, for example, we are not thinking of grooves in the brain. Justice has a meaning, and it does not mean grooves. When I say that mercy is kinder than justice, I'm not comparing mercy's grooves with the stricter grooves of justice. Our ideas are not material. They have no resemblance to our body. Their resemblance is to our spirit. They have no shape, no size, no color, no weight, no space. Neither has spirit whose offspring they are. But no one can call spirit nothing, for it produces thought. And thought is the most powerful thing in the world, unless love is, which spirit also produces. Frank Sheehan. 
So spirit knows, loves, is powerful. Spirit produces what matter cannot, ideas. Ideas have no shape, no color, no weight, no space. Spirit also produces love, which has no shape, no size, no color, no weight, no space. Now everybody should put on their thinking cap. Most people don't like to really think. It does require effort. This is super important, and any effort you put into this is going to pay off hugely in this life. This is foundational. Like so many other things, it seems to be pretty thoroughly neglected by most Catholics. I don't just mean the priests. Spirit is not in space. We begin by a statement that sounds negative, but it isn't. A spirit differs from material thing by having no parts. A spirit differs from a material thing by having no parts. Remember the geometric point. It has no parts. It's not spread out at all. Not even slightly. It has no width, no length, no height, no depth. We're going to make a picture of it, but that picture is wrong. But we have the concept. This is a spiritual thing. It's a very simple spiritual thing. Probably the simplest, not very interesting. But we can work with that. You come back to that at different times. A spirit differs from a material thing by having no parts. A part is any element of being which is not the whole of it. As my chest is part of my body, an electron part of an atom. A spirit has no parts. There's no element in it which is not the whole of it. There's no division of parts as there is in matter. With spirit, there's no division of parts as there is in matter. Our body has parts, different limbs and so forth, each with its own specialized function. It uses its lungs to breathe with, its eyes to see with, its legs to walk with. Our soul has no parts, for it is a spirit. You might have a picture that looks like a ghost. That's just like a picture of a geometric point. It's there, you can't help making a picture, but that has nothing to do with your soul. Okay? Our soul has no parts, for it is a spirit. There's no element in our soul which is not the whole soul. It does a remarkable variety of things, knowing, loving, animating the body, but each one of them is done by the whole soul. It has no parts among which to divide them up. The partlessness of spirit is the difficulty to understand at first. That's why I bring up geometric points, because you can go back and forth. You've got that one, you see, I, it's analogous. This partlessness of spirit is the difficulty to understand at first. Concentrate on this. A, a being which has no parts does not occupy space. Space is what matter spreads its parts out in. A being which has no parts does not occupy space. A being which has no parts does not occupy space. There's hardly anything to be said to make this clear. You just go looking at it until suddenly you find yourself seeing it. A geometric point doesn't occupy space. You can understand your intellect, but no matter what kind of point you make, it's gonna, at that point it's going to occupy space. But the actual geometric point doesn't. This is foundational for our religion. We need to talk about it. And it's, it's, it's like, wow, what's going on here? A being which has no parts does not occupy space. Think of anything one pleases to occupy space. One sees it must have parts. There must be elements in it which are not the whole of it. This end is not that. 
The top is not the bottom, the inside is not the outside. If it occupies space at all, be it ever so microscopic, so infinitesimal, infinitesimally, submicroscopic, there must be some spread. Space is simply what matter spreads its parts in. No matter how sharp you make that pencil, you make a dot that's got some spread. It's not a geometric point. Think of anything that occupies space. You can see it must have parts. There must be elements in which are not the whole of it. This end is not that. The top is not the bottom. The inside is not the outside. If it occupies space at all, no matter how tiny, there must be some spread. Because space is simply what matter spreads its parts in. And spirit is superior to space. If it occupies space at all, be it ever so tiny, there must be some spread. Space is simply what matter spreads its parts in. But a being with no parts has no spread. Space and it have nothing whatever in common. It is spaceless. It is superior to the need for space. A being with no parts has no spread. Space and it have nothing in common. It's spaceless. It's superior to the need for space. The trouble is, we think it hard to think of a thing existing that's not in space. We find it very hard to think of a thing acting if it has no parts. As against the first difficulty, that it's hard to think of a thing existing if it's not in space, we must remind ourselves that space is mere emptiness. And emptiness can hardly be essential to existence. As against the second difficulty, that it's hard to think of a thing acting if it has no parts, we must remind ourselves that parts are only divisions and dividedness can hardly be an indispensable aid to action. As against both difficulties, we may be helped a little by thinking of one of our most common operations, the judgments we're making all the time. For example, what should be done with someone caught speeding, who's rushing to, to, to get someone who's having a heart attack, to get him to the emergency room? What should we do with somebody like that? When in our mind we judge that in that case, mercy would be more useful than justice, we hardly realize what a surprising thing we've just done. We've taken three ideas or concepts, mercy, justice, and usefulness. We've found some sort of identity between mercy and usefulness. Mercy is useful. This means we must have got mercy and usefulness together in our mind. There can be no distance between the two concepts. If there were, they could not be gotten together for comparison and judgment. If the mind were spread out as the brain is, with the concept of mercy in one part of the mind and the concept of usefulness in another, they'd have to stay uncompared. The concepts of justice and usefulness must be similarly together and some identity affirmed between them. The judgment may be that justice is useful, and that's not all. All three concepts must be put together so that the superior usefulness of mercy can be affirmed in this particular situation. The power to make judgments is at the very root of a man's power to live and to develop in the mastery of himself and his environment. And the power to make judgments is dependent on the partlessness of the soul. One single, undivided thinking principle to take hold of and hold in one all the concepts we wish to compare. There's one last truth we're going to state about spirit. It is the permanent thing. It's the abiding thing. Spirit is always itself. 
As we've seen, matter falls apart. We know that. Things die and they rot. You burn wood, it turns into ash, etc. A steady gaze will show us that a being that has no parts, no element that's not the whole of it, cannot occupy space. Continue to gaze, we see it cannot be changed in anything else. It cannot, by any natural process, be destroyed. We've at last arrived at the deepest truth about spirit. Spirit is a being that has a permanent hold upon what it is, so it can never become anything else. Material beings can be destroyed in the sense they can be broken up into their constituents' parts. What has parts can be taken apart. Okay? That's worth repeating. Material beings can be destroyed in the sense they can be broken up into their parts. What has parts can be taken apart. I mean, that's the, the, the object of a bomb, isn't it, right? So material beings can be destroyed because they can be broken up into their constituents' parts. But a partless being lies beyond all that. Nothing can be taken from it because there's nothing in it but its whole self. We can conceive, of course, of its whole self being taken out of existence. That'd be annihilation. But just as only God can create from nothing by willing a being to exist, so only God can reduce a being to nothing by willing it to no longer exist. And for the human soul, God has told us that he will not will it out of existence. A spiritual being, therefore, cannot lose its identity. It can experience changes in its relation to other beings. For example, it can gain new knowledge or lose knowledge that it has. It can transfer its love from this object to that. It can develop its power over matter. Its own body can cease to respond to animating power, and death falls for the body. But with all these changes, the spirit remains itself, conscious of itself, permanent. Okay, so today we consider the nature of man. We saw that man is a union of two distinct principles, a material body, which produces material operations, and a spiritual soul, which produces non-material operations. We've seen that our soul is a spirit. Spirit knows, loves, and is powerful. Spirit produces what matter cannot. Ideas, which have no shape, no color, no size, no weight, no space. It also produces love which also has no shape, no size, no color, no weight, no space. We've seen that our soul has no parts, for it is a spirit. There's no element in our soul which is not the whole soul. We've seen that a being with no parts at all, like our soul, has no spread. Space and it have nothing whatever in common. It is spaceless. It is superior to the need for space, because a being which has no parts cannot spread out in space. It can't occupy space. We've seen that the spirit cannot be changed into anything else. It cannot be any nat- by any natural process be destroyed. That spirit is a being which has a permanent hold upon what is, so it can never become anything else.